You're listening to Sermon Audio from Jerusalem Church, an independent Reformed church in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Our expository preaching ministry is devoted to proclaiming the law and the gospel for the glory of God and the salvation, growth, and comfort of Christ's church. If you'd like to know more about our church, visit us online at JerusalemChurch.net. Here's a message that we hope strengthens your faith and comforts your soul. It's not a topic of polite dinner conversation. It's not the setting of children's bedtime stories. It's not an inspirational word that you see on coffee mugs. It's not something people like thinking and talking about. When it is thought and talked about, it's probably used to get a cheap laugh in some comedy sketch or comic or cartoon or is used as a a curse word or even as a metaphor for suffering. Maybe this is because the reality is too sobering for people to want to treat it honestly. I'm talking about hell, not as a metaphor for severe suffering or as the annihilation of the body and soul. I'm talking about God's judgment and the place of the damned, the place where the wicked are forever consciously tormented by God's righteous wrath and where relief is unattainable. When I was a kid, I I thought going to hell was terrifying. It, It still terrifies me. And when we encounter something frightening or convicting in God's word, maybe something that we don't understand or even like, our tendency is to dismiss it, redefine it, or just outright ignore it. Hell is something Jesus spoke a lot about. More than anything, uh, more than anyone else in, in Scripture, so we can't ignore it. Do we trust Christ enough to endure sound doctrine, sound teaching together, or will we turn away from listening to the truth to be calmed by worldly ideas that suit our own passions? Those who love Jesus listen to Jesus. I readily admit the doctrine of hell is hard to comprehend and swallow, but who are we to critique God according to our standard of justice? Who's the rightful judge of whom? The idea of hell is unsettling. Even some professing Christians dismiss it as nonsense. The problem is to reject the biblical doctrine of hell is to also, one, reject God's word. Two, reject God's infinite holiness, righteousness, justice, and goodness. Three, reject the seriousness and heinousness of sin and evil. Four, greatly diminish the suffering and atonement of Christ. Five, greatly diminish the wonder of God's grace and the sufficiency of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And six, to reject God himself. So be careful, dear church. When you think and talk about hell because what you believe about hell reflects what you believe about God and the gospel. And you want to make sure that you're not believing a false gospel and worshiping a God of your own imagination. At the center of the gospel is God's son suffering hell to save you from hell. And that glorious truth excites obedience to God's commandments. My encouragement to you this morning is this. Keep God's commandments because you know God's Son who suffered hell to save you from hell. 
Don't run from uncomfortable doctrines. Embrace them and fear God. Experience his mercy and his grace and his compassion and his patience and love. And saints, live for him. Do you know what God is like? God is more than love. He's a consuming fire. Scripture says God is love. What else does Scripture say God is? Scripture says God is a man of war, a righteous judge who feels indignation every day, a God of justice, a judge, lawgiver, and king, a dread warrior, a jealous, avenging, and wrathful God, an avenger. Deuteronomy 4.24 says this, for the Lord our God is a consuming fire. Or, or for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, because Hebrews 12, 29 says in similar fashion, for our God is a consuming fire. And then Exodus 24, 17 says, his glory was like a devouring fire, like wildfires consuming drought-laden Maui. God blazes in glorious and devouring justice and vengeance against the wicked. This is divinely inspired figurative language describing God's justice and wrath against evil and sin. Because of his holiness and goodness, God responds to the wicked with justice commensurate with his own holiness and goodness. Scripture talks about God being a God of vengeance and destroying people and making them perish. God says things like, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Scripture says the Lord's soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. In Isaiah 1.24, God declares, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Isaiah 59, 19 says of God, according to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render repayment. Unless we make the heretical and blasphemous mistake of saying that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, James says that the demons shudder at the oneness of God. Peter says the face of the Lord is against those who do evil and that God opposes the proud. Hebrews 10.31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God's justice does not make him cruel or malicious. God's justice doesn't contradict or invalidate his mercy grace and love. His justice is his holiness and goodness. Empty God of the holy attribute of justice or any other holy attribute and you not only have a false God, you have an unjust God who isn't good because he doesn't deal with evil and sin. Now I believe it's idolatry to magnify in our thinking some of God's holy attributes in a way that eclipses other equally holy attributes. For, for instance, if we think about God's love in a way that eclipses or diminishes his justice, we're not honoring or glorifying God. We're inventing a God of our own imagination. Now, have you ever protested outside of a maximum security prison 
yelling for them to just fling open the doors and, and to let out all the rapists and serial killers and gang leaders and mob bosses. Society wants them locked in. Terry L. Nichols, the sidekick of Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, is serving 161 consecutive life sentences at ADX Florence for killing 168 people, including 19 young children and babies. If Terry Nichols got off, what would his release say about the worth and importance of the law and the lives that he killed? Hell is not God maliciously torturing people. Hell is the distribution of divine and deserved judgment. And this relates to our comfort and peace in Christ. What is hell? Hell is a horrifying place where rightfully condemned sinners suffer the everlasting agony of divine justice. As we think about hell, keep in mind that the reality is far worse than the imagery. In the Old Testament, southwest of Jerusalem, there was a place in the valley of the son of Hinnom called Topheth, meaning a burning place, where Israel built idolatrous places of worship. There, Israel unthinkably sacrificed their children in fire to the false god Molech. In later times, Topheth became a sort of city dump and burning place, or burial place where uh, trash and dead bodies of criminals were burned. The Aramaic form of Valley of Hinnom is Gehenna. Gehenna, the Greek word translated hell, uh, is translated hell in the New Testament. So when Jesus spoke about eternal divine judgment, he used imagery of a constantly burning city dump where trash and bodies were consumed by fire. And as we head into the New Testament to ponder the reality of hell, Consider Malachi 4.1, which speaks of the day of God's terrifying judgment. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch." As scripture clearly says, God will bring every deed into judgment. Scripture paints a horrifying portrait of divine judgment and justice. John the baptizer, who prepared the way for Jesus Christ the Lord, said of Jesus Christ, Matthew 3, 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's metaphorical language. The chaff refers to the wicked, and unquenchable fire refers to the furious, righteous judgment of Christ. Dr. Robert Raymond said, quote, unquenchable fire intends at the very least unending conscious misery of immeasurable dimensions, end quote. Jesus said a lot about hell. And we don't have time to dig into all of it, so I'll just highlight a few things that Jesus said. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus used the phrase, hell of fire, and connected hell to liability or guilt. He used legal language to talk about hell. Hell is justice. 
He described a wide gate and an easy way that leads to destruction. Jesus spoke of damnation in his most famous sermon. At another point, Jesus spoke of hell as unquenchable fire. He spoke of it as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is everlasting misery. In Matthew 8, 12, Jesus spoke of final judgment in terms of outer darkness in which there will be weeping and gnashing or grinding of teeth. Folks, make no mistake, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus spoke of all lawbreakers and the evil being cast in to the fiery furnace. Think of an ancient bricklayer feeding his fire with wood to intensely heat up his kiln. This is a picture of divine wrath. Jesus spoke of hell as being a sentence. The Greek word is krisis, which refers to a legal judgment Hell is a horrifying place where rightfully condemned sinners suffer the everlasting agony of divine justice. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 25, verses 41 and 46. He said, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice Jesus said eternal fire, meaning it endures forever. Just as eternal life is enduring, eternal judgment is enduring. Additionally, notice that Jesus said the infliction of punishment is eternal. It also is enduring. Hell is so unsettling We're tempted to embrace the false doctrine of annihilationism, which says that the souls of the wicked will not suffer divine wrath forever, but their souls will simply be extinguished. They cease to exist. And this is is the stop where some evangelicals get off the train of Christian orthodoxy. As much as heaven is forever, hell is forever. I should mention Luke 16, 19 through 31, which I read for you earlier. Jesus tells a story about hell's ongoing torment and misery as a place where mercy is desired but never given or granted. The rich man in Jesus' story said, I am in anguish in this flame. And the story explains that the chasm between everlasting life in heaven and everlasting anguish in hell is eternally fixed. Justice will be done forever. Other scriptures speak of hell in Romans 2, 8, and 9. Contrasting words about eternal life, Paul gave these terrifying words about eternal judgment. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, Paul talks about the glorious return of Jesus Christ, which was for these afflicted, poor, afflicted and suffering saints in Thessalonica, great comfort to think about the return of Christ. 
They were suffering for being Christians. And Paul encouraged them with these words that the Lord Jesus would be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And he told them about Jesus inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. And Paul said of the wicked, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. But the saints will experience relief from all their affliction. Folks, get this. Paul comforted the saints with the truth of divine righteous judgment as they suffered unjustly for Christ. So let me ask you, let me ask myself, have you and I ever been comforted by the thought of divine justice in hell? The Thessalonians were. The book of Revelation contains much figurative language. The reality is much worse than the imagery, but consider the horror of Revelation 14, 10, and 11. It describes the judgment of the one who follows false gods and rejects Jesus Christ the Lord. It says, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. Brothers and sisters, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Does this make God cruel? Absolutely not. But it does confirm his holiness, righteousness, and goodness. See, hell communicates God's opposition to sin Iniquity, transgression, violence, abuse, racism, injustice, lawlessness, idolatry, sexual immorality, malice, persecution, corruption, and everything that is evil. People will vilify God for not doing anything about evil in this life, and then they'll turn around and vilify God for creating hell as the means to deal with evil. Why would someone reject the reality of hell? May I suggest that it's not ultimately because of hell itself or even ultimately that they reject the Bible. Might it be that people reject the reality of hell because they think so little of God himself? If our view of God's holiness, righteousness, and goodness is small, and if we trivialize the heinousness and seriousness of sin and evil, hell will seem so very cruel and will end up vilifying God or reducing him to a God that's just like us. Now, you have to understand, I am not saying that hell makes perfect sense to me, that, that it's not a challenge for me to believe and confess but I will say that what, to, to whatever extent I struggle with the doctrine of hell, I also struggle with the holiness, righteousness, justice, and goodness of God. I'm the problem. God is not the problem. Hell is not the problem. Our God is holy, holy, holy. And we ought to remember that. And we face a great danger, dear church. 
The danger of abandoning truth because it makes us uncomfortable. Beware of a small view of God. Beware of an idolatrous view of God. Trust God. Trust God's word and flee idolatry. Lest idolatry entice you away from God. Clark Pinnock was a respected Christian theologian, professor, apologist, and author who influenced countless evangelical Christians throughout his life. He was a staunch defender of biblical inerrancy and inspiration. In fact, Dr. Pinnock once said, quote, Calvin's theology is good theology because on the whole, his exposition is careful and sound, end quote. But Dr. Pinnock experienced a theological devolution in the 1970s and beyond that took him far away from the Christian faith he once defended. Dr. Pinnock was known as an evangelical maverick, and he ended up espousing the heresy of open theism. Dr. R.C. Sproul once called him a heretic. Dr. Norman Geisler considered Pinnock's work greatly concerning, saying that Pinnock's work was a part of a dangerous trend within evangelical circles of creating God in man's image. As Dr. Pinnock redefined God and the Christian faith, and, and as his theology became progressively abnormal, Dr. Pinnock abandoned the biblical doctrine of hell. It was his idolatrous conception of God that didn't allow him to understand the reality and the necessity of hell. Listen to the shocking way Dr. Pinnock thought about hell and the just and good God who created it. It's a warning to you and me to trust God in his word, to stay close to Christ in his word, lest we wander away from him. Pinnock wrote, quote, let me say at the outset that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind, an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any ordinary moral standards and by the gospel itself. How can we possibly preach that God has so arranged things that a number of his creatures will undergo physical and mental agony through unending time? Is this not a most disturbing concept which needs some second thoughts? Surely the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is no fiend. Torturing people without end is not what our God does. Does the one who told us to love our enemies intend to wreak vengeance on his own enemies for all eternity? Dr. Pinnock went on to say, As I intimated earlier, everlasting torment is intolerable from a moral point of view. Because it makes God into a bloodthirsty monster who maintains an everlasting Auschwitz for victims whom he does not even allow to die. How is one to worship or imitate such a cruel and merciless God? End quote. That's a brazen rejection of God's holiness and justice. 
Those were the foolish, idolatrous, and blasphemous words from the mouth of a man who once defended the scriptures and the Christian faith. Idolatry leads to dangerous places, dear ones. It would be wise of us to remember what God said in Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. To sit in judgment of God is to make yourself God. Oh, that we would humble ourselves and simply trust God. Your soul might be troubled as you hear this, and that's understandable. It's understandable. Does it drive you to comfort in Christ? We confess that God's son descended into hell. And that line, if we truly understand it, and and we believe it, and we confess it, is an immense comfort to our souls. If we vilify God for his justice, how on earth are we going to treasure Christ? If we vilify God and demonize him for his wrath, how on earth are we going to be thankful for the cross? We confess that our God was crucified, dead, and buried, which is a statement primarily about his physical death. But the gospel is so much more because many men have been crucified, dead, and buried. But only one man, the God-man, could bear the infinite just wrath of God for sinners. God's son didn't simply suffer physical crucifixion, burial, and death. He suffered hell in his body and soul. This is gospel. In Gethsemane, when Jesus prayed and asked his father to remove the cup from him, when he was in agony and his blood commingled with his sweat and dropped to the ground, was it the physical pain and the proximity of death that troubled his soul? If so, many men went to their excruciating deaths with way more courage and fortitude than Christ. See, there was an added dimension to his suffering and death that makes his suffering and death unrivaled. What cup was Jesus talking about drinking? The cup of God's righteous anger filled to the brim with the wine of God's holy wrath. His soul was troubled because he was suffering hell in his body and soul. He descended into hell. Takes you deeper into the phrase crucified, dead, and buried. It tells you more about the cross. Your sign is said of Christ, quote, He also suffered in soul the most extreme torments and hellish agonies, such as all the ungodly shall forever endure, end quote. Behind Jesus' words... My soul is very sorrowful even to death was the hell of God's righteous fury. When we confess he descended into hell, we're not saying that Christ went to the literal place of hell to suffer something that he didn't sufficiently suffer on the cross. Hell is ultimately infinite judgment. Now, you might find this interesting, but in years past, I would actually not recite the phrase, he descended into hell in corporate worship. I said the rest of the creed, but when the church got to that part, I would remain silent, wouldn't say it. 
because I don't believe Jesus went to the place of the damned. Jesus told the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He said from the cross, it is finished, accomplished, all that he needed to accomplish. He didn't go to the place of the damned. His human body went into the tomb. His human soul went into the presence of God. His, his divinity remained everywhere all at, one, all at once. You see, I didn't understand the Apostles' Creed. I say it now. When we confess he descended into hell, we're confessing that Christ suffered the maximum weight and blow of God's wrath, which is equivalent to what it is for sinners to suffer God's wrath eternally. His disgrace and anguish were of such value, were of such worth, that it covers eternal suffering in hell. Whatever God's wrath is for sinners eternally was concentrated on the cross and poured out on God's Son. He bore the full intensity of God's divine wrath in his body and in his soul. Caspar Olevianus, who helped out with the Heidelberg Catechism, was right when he said this, quote, and although Christ endured this hellish anguish in his suffering only for a time before overcoming it, nonetheless, this humiliation of the Son of God in such deep disgrace and anguish is of sufficient worth and value in the sight of God to exempt us of eternal pain. End quote. Christ suffering in his body and soul, the hell of God's just wrath gives deep meaning to gospel truths like he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. How can translate into comfort for your soul if you understand it? How? Because Christ suffered hell to save you from hell. Well, what does that mean? What do these fancy biblical terms mean? 1 John 4.10 says that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? Propitiation means Christ took your place to bear judgment for you, to turn aside God's judgment from you, to take away sin and guilt from you, and to reconcile you to God. In other words, he suffered hell to remove God's wrath from you so that you can receive nothing but God's favor and love forever. Jesus didn't descend to the place of the damned. He suffered in his body and soul the righteous indignation of God. Heidelberg 44 explains the phrase, in my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Olivianus said, 
Christ was forsaken by God for a time in order that we might be reconciled with God and never be forsaken by him. That's gospel. That's comfort for your soul. Hear these marvelously comforting words from your sinus. Therefore, to believe in Christ who descended into hell is to believe that he sustained for us in his own soul hellish agonies and pains and that extreme ignominy which awaits the ungodly in hell that we might never descend thither nor be compelled to suffer the pains and torments which all the devils and reprobate will forever suffer in hell, but that on the contrary, we might rather ascend with him to heaven and there with him enjoy the greatest felicity and glory to all eternity. This is the fruit and benefit of this article of Christ's descent into hell. End quote. Saints, we believe and confess he descended into hell to our deepest comfort and assurance, and peace, and joy, because Christ was condemned so that we would be loved. Smile. God loves you in Christ. Who do, a pe- who do people appreciate more? The nurse who pulled the tiny little splinter out of their finger, or the heroic surgeon who cut out the massive tumor from their brain while preserving all of their faculties. Jesus said, he who is forgiven little, loves little. How you think about God's holiness, your sin, and hell influences how grateful you are for God's son who suffered hell to save you from hell. How will you express this love? How will you express your gratitude that he rescued you from hell? How could you go about doing that? Our obedience to God's commandments is confirmation that we truly know him. Should you say that you know and love God if you're not committed to obeying his commandments? Consider with me for a moment 1 John 2, 1 through 6, where John says to the church, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. I love that line. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Saints, to truly know and receive the great love of God expressed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and part of the loving work of Christ is that he suffered hell to save you from hell. You receive that. You you know that to be true because you know him. You know his work. You know his person. You know what he's like. You know how much he loves you. 
You know what he's, what he's done. The righteous suffered hell in the place of the unrighteous. That's the gospel. And if you truly know Christ, you will keep his commandments. By his powerful grace and spirit indwelling you, fueling you, you will make progress. How about I say it that way? You will make progress in keeping his commandments. You will be growing to understand his law more and to understand how to actually live for him, to love him. That's how you express your love, your adoration, your fear, your reverence, your awe, and your gratitude. You don't dismiss his commandments. You don't redefine them. You don't ignore them. You devote yourself to understanding them and to obeying them, whatever you may have to sacrifice. So my encouragement to you today is this. Love God and others because you know God's Son. I could say that you're known by God's Son who suffered hell to save you from hell. Keep the first commandment. Because God's son suffered hell to save you from hell. Keep the second commandment. Because God's son suffered hell to save you from hell. Keep the third and the fourth commandments. Because God's son suffered hell to save you from hell. Love God because you don't have to suffer hell. And because of how glorious he is. Because you know him. And and keep the fifth through tenth commandments where we really love others because God's son suffered hell to save you from hell. Express your adoration. Express your devotion for having divine wrath removed and express it by joyfully obeying God. Olivianus is really worth reading. And he left us with this wonderful thought. Quote, we have a sure and secure comfort in the suffering of Christ. This is true not only in the midst of great physical pain, but also in the worst anguish of soul and conscience, even in the face of the harshest temptation of doubt. For we know that his conscience suffered the most severe torment in order that our consciences, restored to freedom by this high priest and mediator, might have peace and rest in him, end quote. Dear ones, can you make the connection between hell and your peace and comfort for your soul? Now, maybe you are dealing with intense physical pain, chronic pain. I think of Sylvia White, pain. All right, maybe, maybe you're experiencing deep anguish of your soul. And that your conscience is just regularly tormented and uneasy. There was a time in my life my conscience was just all over the place. I was really suffering. It was bad. I couldn't let things go. I couldn't trust grace. I just was a mess as a kid. Or maybe the lusts of your flesh and the temptation to doubt all of this is just wearing you down. You're just exhausted. Maybe you're questioning God right now. Take comfort in this. God's son bore in his human body and in his human soul. He bore even in his human conscience the severest suffering, the torment of hell, so that your dear soul, even your conscience, would find rest and peace in Christ. 
That's the gospel. Rest in Christ, dear ones, for Christ alone is your peace. Christ alone is your comfort. Christ alone is your well-being. Christ alone is your flourishing. Christ alone is your wellness. May your soul rest in his perfect peace.